Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. It's a real delight to celebrate Christmas uh, together. And for most of us, this is a deeply meaningful time because we believe all this stuff. We believe all this stuff in the Bible about the baby Jesus, the manger, the shepherds, the angels, the wise men, etc. But for others, Christmas is enjoyable for different reasons. You maybe appreciate the traditions and and can enjoy the heartwarming stories, whether they're religious or secular, even if you consider everything mythical. But the result is is that people celebrate two very different holidays. And each is observed by millions of people around the world at the same time. In 1999, I spent Christmas in Bangkok, Thailand. And the shopping malls were decked with Christmas trees and bells and holly and reindeer and elves and little Buddha dolls with Santa hats. However, the average shopper was quite unaware of the historical roots of Christmas, which are the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And in our increasingly secularized society, many are ignorant of the basic truths of the Christmas story and how it showcases the gospel. And so setting Santa and the elves aside for a moment, I want to read from John's gospel a summary of the historical roots of Christmas. And my hope is, is that when we're all done, Christmas will take on a deeper meaning for you. If you are a believer, that it will lead you to a greater appreciation of this Savior who was born for you. And if you're not a believer, that you might consider how Christmas is not just a heartwarming season of exchanging gifts, but it can be a heart-changing Season of accepting the greatest gift. And this gift was really given in time and space in history nearly 2,000 years ago for you. So let me read from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all men might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, though... uh, And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name... He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, 
nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So as we consider the the gospel of Christmas from tonight's passage, that, that Jesus, as the word of God, is the light and life of men, we're going to focus on two questions. First, why people content themselves living in the darkness instead of embracing this light? And two, what it means to come out of the darkness and embrace the light. Let me pray. God, thank you for being a God of revelation. And therefore, we can be people of hope, knowing that you have not abandoned us in the darkness. We pray that as we uh, read and seek to understand what you have revealed, that you would not only enlighten yourselves to our minds, but to our hearts as well. Show us your glory, that we might know you accurately and intimately and personally, and that through that knowing, we might have great hope, transforming hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, why people content themselves to live in the darkness? During the Cold War, two superpowers, the USSR and the USA, vied for dominance, and everything became a battlefield for competing ideas and policies. And each side desperately wanted to convince the rest of the world that their approach, not that of their adversary, was the way of the future. And the race to space became part of the battle between atheistic communism and God-acknowledging democracies. And in 1961, the Russians seemed to be winning the race. They put the first man into space... And it was rumored that this astronaut, Yuri Gagarin, proclaimed, I went up to space, but I did not see God. Now, even before the days of Twitter, such quips and barbs were common. The 1960s in Russia was the zenith of humanism and secularism. Anybody who was anyone, even in the West, that was educated and enlightened knew that religion was a thing of the past. The future belonged to man, not God. And those who said otherwise, especially in the USSR, were blackmailed or blackballed. Excuse me. See, mocking belief in God by stating that God was not found in space was was intended to marginalize believers, but it actually had a different impact for two reasons. One historical and the other rational. First, time would reveal an inconvenient truth that Yuri Gagarin never said those words. Not when he was in space, and he never repeated it once his cosmonaut boots returned safely back on Earth. So how did this fake news become so widespread? Well, the rumor grew out of something that the premier, Khrushchev, had said, not Garrigan. And at the Central Committee, Khrushchev mocked, Garrigan, why didn't you step on the brakes in front of God? Here is Garrigan, who flew up to space, and yet even he didn't see God anywhere. And those words were placed in Garrigan's mouth to spread the party's anti-religious propaganda. In reality, Garrigan was a Russian Orthodox, and he told his friends 
An astronaut cannot be suspended in space and not have God in his mind and heart. Garrigan thought it wiser not to end his career by contradicting Russian leaders. But, according to reports, soon after, Garrigan visited a monastery, and a short while later, he took photographs of himself and told the priest, this is for those who don't believe, and he signed it with my best wishes, Yuri Garrigan. The second reason Khrushchev didn't get the last laugh was rational. C.S. Lewis provided a logical response in an essay he published in February 1963. He writes, The Russians, I'm told, report that they have not found God in outer space. Looking for God by exploring space is like reading all of Shakespeare's plays and hoping that you'll find Shakespeare. If God does exist, he is related to the universe more as an author is related to a play than as one object in the universe is related to another. So like many who mock Christianity, Khrushchev thought that he was the cleverest boy in the room. But his perspective was disconnected from historical truth and reason. And instead of undermining belief in God, his behavior was simply more evidence that if you refuse to consider God from the outset and are unwilling to consider evidence and reason then, of course, you'll fail to find him in the long run. Lewis said it best. He said, to some, God is discoverable everywhere. To others, nowhere. Those who do not find him on earth are unlikely to find him in space. But send a saint up into space, and he'll find God in space as he found God on earth. Much depends on the seeing eye. See, the Gospel of John I just read makes the same point by showing us that even if God proved his existence and his wisdom and his goodness and his love by doing what Shakespeare could not, and God wrote himself into his own story as the gospel of Christmas proclaims that he did, he did it in time and in history, only those who had the eyes to see him would find him. Look at it again in verse 1 through 4, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. Without him, not anything was made that was made. And in him's life, and, and the life is the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome. And then skip down to verse 10. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And he came to his own And his own people did not receive him. Notice how John links two ideas. Refusing to see Jesus is like choosing to remain in the dark. And this should raise two questions. Well, what are the benefits of darkness? And and then also, what is the cost of remaining in the darkness? So let's, let's dig a little bit deeper into the metaphor that John uses of darkness. Why would anyone choose darkness over light? Now, if we pause even for a moment to think about it honestly, we already know the reason. We are used to getting away with stuff in the darkness. We can do what we want with less risk of being found out and discovered. Every cheater, every adulterer, knows the benefit of darkness. 
Every thief knows they must shroud the eyes of others to get the goods. See, living in the darkness offers many benefits, albeit self-serving, but anyone who is committed to those benefits will always choose the darkness over coming into the light. In fact, they'll do whatever they can to avoid the light, including manipulating the truth. And their motives, though they proclaim are neutral, are not quite as objective as they profess or even think. And in a similar way, John is cutting through the religious excuses people make. He declares that God has come. The Word was God, verse 1, and the Word became flesh, verse 14. He came into the world of darkness as the light of the world, but the people did not receive him. They wanted to avoid him because God, if he exists and if he has come, he has the right, he has the authority, he has the power to place demands on us. And so it's easy enough to understand the self-serving benefits of remaining in the darkness and why people choose it. But, and here's the second question, if that's the benefit, what's the cost of living in the darkness? And John exposes the cost in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, while darkness can conveniently hide the truth, it can only do so temporarily. Eventually, truth will win out. What was hidden will be exposed. Wherever light shines, darkness must flee. So beware and be warned. It is folly to linger in darkness and believe the benefits of this present darkness can last. Such dark advantages never endure long. Darkness has not overcome the light. It never does. It never will. Darkness cannot overcome even a little bit of light. A single candle sends darkness fleeing from any room and exposes everything. So the benefits of living in darkness is that we get away with things that we would never do in the light, and we can indulge in selfishness and sin with less risk of being found out. However, the cost of living in darkness is the deceit it creates and the futility of its promised protections. Those living in darkness may try to deceive others, but actually they're deceiving themselves. The protections that the darkness promised never last. The light of truth always wins out ultimately. Darkness cannot hide anything once the light has come. And the cost of living in the darkness, it's not simply subjective where we just feel embarrassed and ashamed and we regret once things are exposed in the light, but it's also objective, a real objective guilt and condemnation because we've doubled down on hiding our sin and selfishness in the dark. So let's bring the metaphor back to the reality to which it describes. What does this all mean? God has come into time and history in the person of Jesus Christ so that all might see him and know him and find life in him, but many did not receive him. Instead, they chose to avoid, to ignore, and to reject him. In other words, they preferred to remain in darkness where they could hide their pet vices and sin, even though they'd been warned that all things will be exposed by his light and the benefits that they receive in the darkness will not last. How does this apply? Don't allow yourself to grow content in the darkness. No matter how comforting and beneficial 
Its temporary advantages are proving to be in your life. In Jesus Christ, God has proven he is real. He has drawn near. He has arrived in the flesh. The light of the world has come. All things are exposed by him and his word and his truth and his presence. Before him, the heart of every person will be laid bare. He will judge in righteousness and truth. And so don't allow yourself to grow content in the darkness. So now that we've covered the, you know, the, the benefit or the perceived benefits and the cost of darkness, why people choose it, and also why it's a foolish choice, let us turn to the second question, what it means to come out of the darkness and embrace the light of life. Jesus, God made flesh. And there's two things I want to talk about. First, we need to challenge our assumptions. And second, we need to behold his glory. So first, what it means to come out of darkness and embrace the light. We have to challenge our assumptions. The first assumption that we need to challenge is a common secular one. And the second challenge that we need uh, to address is, is a common religious one. So the secular assumption is that the Christmas story may be lovely and beautiful, but it can't be true. Virgin birth, yeah, right. A God baby, Mm mm-hmm. Angels, they all make for beautiful Hallmark cards, but you can't expect me to believe it really happened. And so John's warnings about living in darkness remains a metaphorical warning but it loses any real or eternal significance because the thinking goes, we don't actually know what God thinks. And we can't know God. All religions are merely a human construct. We can know what we think about God, but that's all. We can't actually know God. We can't actually know his heart and what he thinks and what he values. Now, while this perspective seems humble enough on its surface... Upon deeper reflection, it evidences blinding pride. A simple but important question must be asked. How do you know? How do you know we can't actually know God? If God actually exists, and it's very likely he does, the objection stands on shaky ground. Who are we to say that God does not have the right to self-expression? or the ability to express himself accurately and well when we cherish those rights so dearly for ourselves. Who doesn't cherish the right to self-expression, even though we are far less capable to communicate our heart and mind? But the historical good news of Christmas is that God has revealed himself. He is so interested in being understood accurately and known personally that he takes a nickname, The Word. And he takes it from the beginning. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In college, I had all kinds of nicknames. (laughs) Uh, One I wish I could claim I was given because I have muscular arms that friends used to Google at and boast about, but the nickname was Two Guns. You know, like, look, here comes the gun show. (laughs) But that wasn't the reason I was given the nickname. The reason why I was given the nickname is because I would unconsciously dance like this. (laughs) 
And people would say, nice dance in there, two guns. And I'm like, why do people call me, why are you calling me that? Well, my main point is this, right? Nicknames describe us. That's why they're chosen. And out of all the nicknames for Jesus, why does John, who knew Jesus best, pick the nickname The Word? Because Jesus Christ is God's clearest communication to us. He's not just another prophet in a row. He is the one to whom all the prophets point. And when he speaks, he speaks with the authority of God because he is God. And since we use words to communicate, John is declaring in Jesus, God is bending over backwards to reveal himself, to communicate his heart and his mind personally and accurately. The word was God. In verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And so check your assumptions that we can't really know God. That assumes that God does not have the right to self-expression or the ability to express himself accurately, but he absolutely does. Even a child can express themselves. Why can't God? And the wiser and more mature and more knowledgeable you are, the more capable you are to communicate clearly and accurately and precisely. And there is no one wiser, no one more powerful, no one more mature, no one more knowledgeable than God himself. So who are we to say? that God cannot find a way to reveal himself perfectly, even through imperfect people like us. God is bending over backwards so that we might know him accurately and personally, whether through the prophets like John or in the flesh through Jesus. And so challenge your assumption that we can't know God, that all religion is merely human constructs. Really what you need to do is, is there any doubt or any room for doubt in that secular assumption. Because if it's not, then it's just become an alternate faith, a rather dogmatic one. So if you dare to leave the darkness, the first assumption you must challenge is a secular one, that the Christmas story, it's not only beautiful, but it may be true. And if it's true, you need to pay attention to it, because it means God has arrived on earth. And you had better pay attention, because he is your creator And as John says in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, the second assumption that must be challenged is a common religious assumption, and this assumption is almost the opposite. This is a person who believes that Christmas is true. At least they agree it could be true, but they either have lost sight of its beauty or they don't see it for themselves. Maybe for them, a light shining into their darkness is a terrifying prospect. They've lived in the darkness of sin and shame so long they've been hiding in fear of the light of God. And like a bright light that suddenly flips on after having lived or slept in a dark room so long, they know that light hurts. It, and it not only pierces the soul like a, like a sharp sword, it exposes all their faults and failures. For such a person, maybe Christianity has, has become like looking in a mirror after the worst night of their life. <laughs> and, and the light of God in the face of Jesus Christ shining upon them leaves them feeling just ashamed and unworthy. And entering a a Christian church like this, even with its beautiful Christmas decorations, makes them feel uneasy. They, They feel like they're a trespasser or an imposter. 
And the way to correct both assumptions, the secular or the religious one, is the same. And it's the good news of Christmas, which is both true and beautiful. And to see the truth and beauty, we have to behold the unique glory of Jesus. And that leads to our last point. We need to behold his glory. Christmas is wonderful. And it's wonderful not just because it's another beautiful myth. It is true. But it's not simply another religious truth. It is beautifully transforming. How so? How are, how are we beautifully transformed? Well, we behold his unique glory. Look at verse 6 and verse 12. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe. In verse 12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. See, John stands at the end of a long line of witnesses, those who testified to the promised one to come. And this promised one to come was to restore all broken things, to make everything new. For as verse 14 says, he is full of grace and truth. And in other words, his light was, was not just exposing the terrifying truth of our brokenness, but also his wondrous, transforming, powerful grace. And it's not a partial grace. He is full of grace and truth. In other words, as his light exposes the truth of what was in the darkness, he also exposes his grace that is more than sufficient, that is amazing grace to heal every broken thing, to forgive, restore, and cleanse every dirty thing. And to make all things new. It is an amazing grace towards sinners. That is the glory to which John testifies. And in Jesus, we have seen God in the flesh. We have seen his glory. The glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. And it takes a while to let such amazing grace sink in. But as we behold him, God in the flesh dwelling among us. The beauty begins to sink in melt our heart and transform us. How so? It's no accident that when God came at Christmas, he came as a baby. What better way to sneak past the defense mechanisms of sinful, arrogant people? Their arrogance and fear and apathy than coming as a baby boy. He could have come in power and might, but he comes in tenderness and humility to open the hearts, and sneak past the defense mechanisms of sinners who are afraid of his truth. It's no accident that he was born to an unwed, poor teenage couple. What better way for God to sneak past the self-righteousness of humanity than to honor the poor and the outcasts, even the scandalous, by, by allowing the king of heaven to be born to a, to a nobody couple that's uneducated and from a despised town called Nazareth, God didn't need to be born to an unwed teenage girl. But what greater way to show his grace for those that the world overlooks and despises. And it's no accident that 
He was born in Bethlehem. Where he was born, yes, it's the city of David. And that had been foretold to show that God had planned this out. But what better way for God to show his perfect love than to put himself in a place where he can empathize with the underprivileged, with those who are overlooked and locked out. Remember, there was no room for him in the inn. And he was born in a stable. He had no crib. He was laid in a feeding trowel. I mean, we could go on and on and on, but those are just three brief examples of beholding his glory by simply gazing on that first night of Christmas, how he came as a baby to sneak past our, our defense mechanisms Who he was born to, showing us that his grace is for for the humble, the lowly, not for those who have it all together. Where he was born, to show that, that God is a God of perfect empathy. He not only walks in our shoes, he has walked in a way that's harder than any life we could ever imagine. What better way to prove he is trustworthy and good? And all who receive him, who believe in his name, as it says in verse 13, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, meaning not according to natural means, who are born not of the will of the flesh nor the will of man, meaning not according to human efforts, but they're born of God. This is a work of nothing but pure, lavish grace. Undeserved, unmerited, poured out for you, though you don't deserve it, but it can be yours. And so in closing, how does this apply? Will you come out of the darkness... And embrace the light. Will you receive this gift? Or will, let, or will you let fear and pride keep you in the dark? It may be challenging to receive this gift because some gifts, by their very nature, force you to swallow your pride and forget your fears. Tim Keller said it this way, Imagine opening a present on Christmas morning from a friend and it's a dieting book. And then you take off another ribbon and wrapper and you find another book from another friend titled Overcoming Selfishness. Now, if you say to them, thank you so much, (laughs) you are in a sense admitting, for indeed I am fat and obnoxious. In other words, some gifts are hard to receive because to do so you have to admit you have flaws and weaknesses and you need help. Perhaps a friend figured out that you were in financial trouble and came to you and offered you a large sum of money. And if you've ever received such a gift, it means you've had to swallow your pride. And Christmas means that we are so lost, so broken, so unable to save ourselves that nothing less than God coming himself to do what we could not do is sufficient. He came to live the life we all know we should live, but don't. In order to save us from the death, we all know we deserve to die, but won't. If we receive this gift, then we can be brought in and made children of God, restored and reconciled to him, part of his family. That is the good news of Christmas. It's not only beautiful, but it's true. And inasmuch as you let that sink in, maybe you will embrace the light in deeper and more profound ways, trusting it and experiencing the redemption and the beauty of God. Let us pray. God, thank you so much for your word, for being a God of revelation. We pray 
that these words that were spoken tonight would, would penetrate our hearts deeply, that your spirit would, would apply it to our hearts, get in the nooks and crannies of where it needs to apply. We pray that, that you wouldn't only apply it to our lives, but as we think about these things, as we ponder these things, as we think of those that we love in our life that don't know this truth, that don't understand this gift, that we might have the courage to pray for them and to enter into conversation to share this good news, that may, they might come out of darkness, receive this great gift that is both beautiful and true, the gift of you and your Son poured out for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.